Well, amen and good morning once again, church. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and join me in turning to Hebrews chapter 13. And as you're doing that, I just want to say that last song we heard said nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's really the theme of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is better than all the rival saviors because only His blood can cleanse our conscience. Only the bloody death of Jesus in our place can give us any hope. In a world of death, we have hope because Christ has conquered it. And He is risen. And I'm already preaching my sermon, and so I better stop. Uh, let's, let's pray, and then we'll dive into the Word of God together. God in heaven, You're so good. You came down. We could never get up to You. God, that's what the Tower of Babel teaches us. Is as high as we might try to climb, whatever towers we might build, whatever good deeds we might offer in our own strength. They are nothing compared to your holiness and your righteousness. And so you stepped down. You stepped down into time and space and human history and wrapped yourself in our humanity and lived the life that glorifies the Father and offered yourself as a perfect once-for-all sacrifice and substitute. And so, God, we have hope. In a world that is otherwise hopeless, we have hope. And so we give you praise and we ask, God, that today in the, the reading and the hearing of Your Word, and the receiving of this message, that we would, we would leave changed, God. That we would leave more like Jesus, more equipped to do Your will. And God, we pray with expectancy today. We, we expect that when the Word of God that is authored by the Spirit of God goes out to the people of God, that You will move, that You will work. And so we pray, God, asking might I be the one? Might, might we be the ones that you want to move and compel in some special way today? We give you praise for what you're about to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 20 through 25 of chapter 13 of Hebrews in a message I'm calling Last Words for Lasting Faith. Congratulations, you have endured through the book of Hebrews for a little more than a year. And it's a book that's all about endurance. You made it. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant that is Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So that's, the, that's it. That's the benediction. It's the closing prayer on His letter slash sermon He's done. And then, oh, little postscript. Verse 22, but I urge you, brothers and sisters, listen patiently to this word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Three things that I want you to see in this text this morning. First, we must be equipped by the God of peace to do His will. If we're going to last in the faith, these are last words for lasting faith. If we're really going to endure, we've got to be equipped by the God of peace to do His will. God doesn't save us just to sit around and soak. He saves us to do the will of God. In verse 20, the author is bringing his letter to a close with this final prayer. And it's a prayer that he believes that God will answer because he prays that we would do the will of God. And the Bible promises when we pray in accordance with God will, God's will that God will answer. So i got to ask you, 
Is it God's will for God's people to do God's will? 100%. So this is not a prayer that he's like, I'm not sure if God's going to answer this. It's like, it's a declaration statement. God is going to do this in his people. He knows that God will work toward the end, that the people of God will do the will of God, even in a world that is set against God's people. And here's the beautiful thing. When we do the will of God, God works through our work to equip us. Now this word equip is an interesting word. It's it's not the word that's typically translated to build up. It's a different word that means to make complete or adequate or to mend. It's the same word that's used of the disciples when they were mending their fishing nets. You remember the fishing nets that had big holes in them and they had to mend their nets? And the reality is, without Jesus, without God working into us what He wants to work out of our lives, left to ourselves and our own strength and our own power, we are like fishing nets with big holes. They're not going to catch anything. But when God changes us by the power of His Holy Spirit and applies the life of Christ to us and makes us grateful for the grace of God that we have received, God works. He works in us for us to be able to do the will of God. You can almost hear Paul's words from Philippians 1.6 echoing in our ears. I am confident of this very thing that He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God will finish what He starts in His people. The great work of saving sinners and working through the work that He leads us to do to make us more like Jesus, God will do it. So we are saved entirely by the grace of God. There's nothing we contribute, there's nothing we add that saves us, and yet, those who are saved by the grace of God are given a work to do. He saves us that we would work out what He's working into our lives to do. And in the midst of persecution and pressures and problems and anxieties and confusions and national elections and whatever else it is that you brought into this sanctuary this morning, there's a temptation that comes with those pressures. And the temptation is to give up. The temptation is to believe that what we read on our Facebook profiles or what we hear on television, or what we read on websites is ultimate. But Jesus is ultimate. Jesus is the final reality. And the stories that this world is telling, while they might seem true for a while, will ultimately bow before Christ as King. No one will escape the authority, the rule, and the reign, and the righteousness of our great God. And so the temptation for us this morning, because I know many of you, have brought some anxieties into this place. Many of you have brought some doubts and some worries about your future and the future of your children or your grandchildren into this sanctuary today. And the temptation is to throw in the towel. It's to give up. It's to stop reading the Word. It's to stop praying. It's to stop sharing the Gospel. To stop inviting your friends to church. To become so beaten down by the world and the narratives and the stories of the world that you forget that God has saved you and left you here as His ambassadors to the world that is dying. You see, this world that is rejecting the King desperately needs Spirit-empowered ambassadors who will live out, for the, live out their lives for the glory of their King and let God meet them on the way and make a great difference through your life. Every time there's a challenge or a pressure point or a problem we face for doing what honors Jesus and we choose to obey the Spirit, look at what God does. So there's a problem, 
there's an anxiety, there's a pressure point, there's a choice to make, and we, we obey the Spirit of God. Look at verse 21. He works into us that which is pleasing in His sight. In other words, we don't just obey God because obedience pleases God, but we obey God because when we obey, especially when it's hard to obey, God is forging us and compressing us more into the image of Christ so that less of our old self remains and more of what pleases Jesus is there. The process of forging. Do you, are you familiar with this process? You heat up a metal, but you don't liquefy it, but you heat it up until it is molten enough to be pressed into a mold. And that which goes into the mold hardens to the point that it cannot be broken. It's not like die cast where you liquefy it and pour it in. It's got all kinds of weaknesses in it. And that's what God is doing through the pressures of the world. He's heating up our life. He's showing us those areas that are not conformed to the glory of Christ. And He says, obey me, watch me, count the cross and count the cost of the life of Jesus as more compelling and more worthwhile than whatever the world is offering and watch me make you more like Jesus in the process. It's no accident that God is called the God of peace in verse 20. In a world that doesn't want us to do God's will, we are reminded that God is the God of peace. Peace is not found in compromise with the world. Peace is not found in selling out your faith in Jesus Christ. True peace comes through surrender to the God of peace. The word God of peace here means the God who gives peace. How did God give peace? He gave His Son so that we could have a relationship with God as our Father. It's a peace that passes all understanding and it is available in all circumstances. It's a peace that comes when you know your sins are forgiven and your life is secure because Christ is risen and death has no power over you. So what the world brings ultimately doesn't matter. You see, the reason we can have peace in a world of death is because Jesus was, do you see it in verse 20, brought up from the dead. Without the resurrection, we don't have peace. But Jesus is our resurrected King and Priest and Lord. Hebrews has shown us again and again in chapter 1, in chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 12, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father where there's all power and all authority and we are in Jesus and through Jesus we have peace with God, full confident, bold access to His presence, and that is where peace is found. Jesus' resurrection proves that God has accepted His sacrifice and approved of Him giving His life for us. Because death could not hold Jesus, His bloody death secures, do you see it in verse 20, an eternal covenant. It's not a covenant that's on again, off again. It's not a covenant that goes away because I made a mistake, because I sinned one time. It's an eternal covenant. His blood is good once and for all. Hebrews has much to say about this new, better, eternal covenant purchased through the blood of Jesus. By His blood, we have full and final forgiveness of sins. Chapter 10, verse 18. We have eternal salvation. Chapter 5, verse 9. We have an eternal inheritance. Chapter 9, verse 15. And we have a home in the heavenly Mount Zion, the city to come. Chapter 10, 12, and 13. Church, without the resurrection, without Jesus raising from the dead, we would have no confidence that any of this is true. But He conquered the grave. If Jesus were not risen, He would not be advocating for us in heaven right now. And our hope would be in someone good, but still good as 
dead. But praise God, our hope is not in a dead good teacher, but in a living, resurrected king. Because Jesus conquered the grave. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the shepherd anticipated by the Old Testament. The one who can lead us even through the valley of shadow of death and give us a seat at His table even in the presence of our enemies because He has conquered death. Isaiah 63, 11 tells us that Moses was like a shepherd of the flock because he led the Israelites through the Red Sea. But we've got an even better shepherd than Moses. He didn't lead us just through a sea with the Egyptians pressing down upon us. He led us out of everlasting death with our sin and our guilt and our damnation chasing us down. And Jesus came and said, I'll take all that so they can have a share in the life of God. He's a great shepherd. In Ezekiel chapter 34, 23, the Lord promises, I will appoint over them the shepherd, my shepherd David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. How does he feed him, us himself? He is broken. His body is broken for us. This is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper prophesied in the Old Testament, that he would bear our sin and that he would conquer it in the grave and that he would be raised and he would lead us even through death. Jesus is the great shepherd and the true and better Moses and the true and better David because he is also the good shepherd. John 10 11, he's the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and he conquers it. Death, sin, hell, the grave in his resurrection. The pastor who's writing this letter, whoever he is, knows that we cannot live out this letter in our own strength. We've got to have the resurrection power of Jesus living on the inside of us. We cannot endure through adversity in our own power. We cannot choose what glorifies Jesus in our own ability. But guess what? The God of peace can aid you in doing these things. As Paul says in Philippians 2.13, it is God who is at work in you both to desire and work for His good pleasure. The God who sent His Son to die for us and then raised Him from the dead, He's the one who will complete you and empower you to do the will of God in every good thing. Do you see those words, in every good thing? Not just when it feels right, not just when when you wake up on the right side of bed and you make your coffee and you nail that perfect ratio of half and half to coffee and whatever sweetener you use. And some of you are looking back at me like, I do it black, man. I, I don't fool with all that stuff. Well, for me... It's got to be that perfect combination, and that makes me, that, that's a good start to the day when the coffee's perfect. But even when the coffee is off, we're supposed to do every good thing to the glory of God who's rescued us. God saves us to change us and to do good deeds for His glory. He saves us to do His will in a fallen world, and He works through our obedience, obedience that is possible. Do you see it? Through Jesus Christ, meaning through our union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So get this, to summarize verses 20 and 21, we are saved by Jesus to become like Jesus. And we become like Jesus as we do God's will. We are saved by Jesus to become like Jesus, and we become like Jesus as we do God's will even when it's difficult. When we deny the worldly desires of our flesh, fame, wealth, comfort, convenience, whatever else is working against our honoring of God, God uses those moments of obedience to make us more like His Son who saved us. And when that happens, God is glorified. And to that we can all say, as verse 21 does, Amen. So be it. God be 
praised. So that settles it. It's the end of the sermon. It's the benediction. It's the closing prayer. Woohoo! We're out of here early. Not quite. I mean, Pastor, we just rely on God who finishes what He starts and that's it. And, and the answer is yes. Just rely, fully rely on God and watch God work it out in your life. That's, that's it. But here's the problem. So often we think so much better our, than our, of ourselves than we ought. And we're like, well, I can just ignore church. I can ignore the Word. I trusted Jesus when I was 12. He changed me. It'll all work out and it'll be fine. Wrong. You see, to rely on God, there's ways that we've been given in His Word to rely on God. And those things are presented to us in the final verses of the book. It's like a little postscript, like, now don't forget, this is how you rely on God. So, the second point in the sermon, and the first way we're given to rely on God, is we must listen to God's Word and be engaged with God's people. Now, before I get into the meat of my argument in this point, I want to point out that verse 22 says that his word of exhortation, which is a way that the Bible describes a sermon, right? So he's telling this church, I've written you a sermon that's going to be read among all the gathered church. Did you notice that he says, I've written to you briefly? 13 chapters, 4,987 words in the Greek, which would take approximately 45 minutes to read at a pace that people could hear and comprehend. He says that's a brief sermon. So a 45-minute sermon is brief. The Bible says so. Please remember that. <clears throat> Just saying. Considering how much ground the author covered in his message... There are, there's no argument. It is a brief letter. He covers so much of the Old Testament. He makes so many arguments. Indeed, there were places along the way as I was preaching what he was saying that I was like, man, I wish you would have said a little bit more so I could have a little more confidence about what you were saying. It is, it is a brief letter. Now, while there are places that it is perhaps a bit confusing, the overall message of Hebrews is clear, right? Jesus is better, only Jesus can save, and those who are truly saved will endure, and as they, will en as they endure, they're going to become more like Jesus, even and especially when pressure comes. But for this to happen, we must not leave behind the Word of God or the people of God. Wherever you find God's people, you will find them focused on and compelled by the Word of God. Indeed, this sermon would have been read to a gathered congregation a congregation the author considers his brothers and sisters, his family in Jesus. And do you see what he does? He urges them. He pleads with them. He begs with them out of his love for them not to just let this be words that they hear on a Sunday gathering and go home and forget about. He urges and begs them, receive it. Bear with it. Take it into who you are. You see, church, sermons aren't just to be heard and evaluated and regarded as interesting, nice, and compelling, and this then discarded. Sermons are either received or they are rejected. And there is an urgency to our decision. The author is begging his church to let the Spirit do his work, and the Spirit works in the hearts of those who are open to hearing and heeding the Word of God. One of, one of Satan's great lies is that it's possible to be faithful to Jesus while forgetting God's Word and its implications for our lives. It's impossible. You can't be faithful to Jesus and forget the Word of God. 
The entire book of Hebrews is really fighting against that idea. It's saying that what we believe about Jesus, who He is and what He's done, if we really believe in this Jesus, it will compel us to live differently in the world, even when it's costly. We must receive the message that Jesus is better because our endurance in the faith is fueled by a feasting on Christ. And how do we do that? By hearing His Word in community with other Christians. As Paul says in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. Don't expect to live for Jesus when you're not consistently hearing the Word about Jesus. In verse 22, the author speaks of the church as his spiritual family. In verse 23, he continues to show how the family of God is interconnected and, and how they are concerned for one another by mentioning Timothy and his release from prison. Now this is an interesting postscript here in the letter because Timothy, we know, is Paul's apostolic delegate in the faith. Paul plants churches, deploys Timothy, Timothy appoints elders, sets up church plants. And so a number of Bible scholars say, well see, that proves it. Paul wrote this letter. And maybe it is Paul. The only challenge with that is Paul never tells us that He's the author of the letter, and every other letter we have in the New Testament that Paul wrote, he tells us he's the author. So whether it's Paul or somebody else like Luke, who was around Paul and Timothy, we're not sure. But at the end of the day, whether it's Paul or Luke or some other author, he has a pastor's heart for this church, and he longs to be with them. And he longs to be united with Timothy as well. The emphasis here moves from the Word of God that we must receive to the relationships that God produces in the family. He continues this emphasis on the importance of relationships in verse 24. And he says, Greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. Those from Italy greet you. In the midst of persecution and pressure, church, the great temptation is to run away from each other. To adopt a bunker mentality, to go into our homes and ignore the family of God. But the author knows that Jesus died to create a new and holy community under His headship to put His glory on display even in difficult times. He knows that an important way that we are encouraged to do the will of God is to love one another and to support one another as we strive to reach the city to come and the King who saved us. So he tells them at the end of his message, don't forget to greet one another. Don't forget to be reminded that you're in this together. That you are made one through the blood of Jesus. That Jesus is the head. And in this body there are pinky toes and big toes and kneecaps and knees and legs and arms and ears and eyes. And you are brought together through the blood of Jesus to love one another and put His glory on display. Greet one another. Greet your leaders. And come back the next week to hear another word from God. So he concludes this letter with a command to greet everyone. You know, often in New Testament letters, there are commands to greet. In Romans chapter 16, we get 13 verses worth of greetings. But here, just a single verse. But it encompasses everybody. Everybody greet everybody and don't forget your leaders. He sends greetings from himself and others who are with him in Italy who want to send their greetings, or from Italy, who want to send their greetings back to the church. This pastor misses his church family. Those with the pastor miss their church family and they want to be united together. This is the sort of connectivity that Jesus wants to build into his church so that his church can be completed in Christ as they receive the word of God. Do you see the two key ingredients? 
is the Word of God and it's the people of God. And the danger in churches usually tends to one direction or the other. They're so focused on theology, which is very important, don't misunderstand, and the Word of God and the Bible and getting their facts right, that they don't care about people. Or they're so focused on relationships and hokey football, which is a disaster right now, (laughs) and all the things that you can talk about that have nothing to do with Jesus, and neither one of those things is what God desires for His church. Yes, He wants you to be doctrinally correct and sound. Yes, He wants you to have fun and relationships that include the abysmal hokey football team, but He really wants a church that is focused on the Word of God and talking about the Word of God and praying for one another and exhorting one another and encouraging one another to reach the city that is to come. Gospel-centered relationships. Word-based relationships. As Schreiner writes, the church of Jesus Christ is a family. Greetings and news about one another are significant. For every person matters and every person is important. God puts us in a church family to put hands and feet and mouths to His love. God wants to work in us and the Spirit works in us when we are with one another in the Word for the glory of Jesus. And then there's one final vital ingredient and we find it in verse 25. We must be captivated and compelled by grace. This last little verse, verse 25, we find similar verses throughout the New Testament. A a call for grace to be with the people of God. Grace be not with some of you, not with just the leaders, not with just the people who happen to really be excited about grace. Grace be with you all. Such a common little expression, and yet it really summarizes the entire book of Hebrews. We need God's grace because the journey from right here and right now to Jesus' face requires a power that can only come to our lives when we are focused on Jesus and His gracious gift of His life for us. Our constant need, church, is the grace of God. In Christ, we have been given a gift we could not earn or deserve, the death of Jesus in my place, the life of Jesus in my place, the resurrection power of Jesus applied to my life so that I can walk for Him in the here and now, even when it hurts. The great need of our lives is grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. We not only need saving grace, church, but sustaining grace. This is one of the things that took me far too long to learn in my Christian walk, but it's not just about praying a prayer when I'm 7, 8, 10, 12. It's about praying a prayer constantly in my life, coming again and again to the One who saved me in the beginning, recognizing that apart from Him, I can do nothing. And I need His grace every day to do His will. Grace to persevere through every trial and storm. Guess what? Through Jesus, that grace and that eternal covenant of His blood, that grace is available every day. And it is available as we learn more and more to delight in Jesus and to find our hope and our passions and our pursuits in Him and not in ourselves. For Jesus is a better Savior, an eternal King, a final sacrifice who took our place, forgives our sins, gives us His righteousness and access to God so we can stand before Him unashamed. You see, church, God doesn't just give us grace one time. 
He gives us grace upon grace, John 1.16. He gives us grace for every step in our journey to the city to come. He gives us grace through the spiritual gifts that He builds into our lives. He gives us grace to repent and forgive and be restored in our relationships with one another. He gives us grace to stay faithful to Jesus, even like these 240 million people that Hope told us about earlier, even when facing real persecution. To endure in the faith, church, we've got to swim in an environment of God's grace. Now, don't misunderstand grace. Grace is not permission to sin. Grace recognizes that you will sin, and it is the power to repent, forgive, be cleansed, and to move on and do better in the future, all because of the enabling power of God's grace. He gives us grace for every moment of every day of our journey to His city. Grace leads us to overcome and root out sin, to desire the glory of Jesus more than the praise of men. It leads us to stick with Jesus and His people all the way to the finish line. How does all this happen? Hebrews has shown us it's by grace. God uses the message of His grace to give us His grace. Isn't that amazing? This book is called, at places in the Scriptures, the Word of Grace. It's called the gospel of grace. Where do I find this grace? Where do I access this grace? Where do I be refreshed in my spirit by this grace? It's not rocket science. It's by being exposed to the word and being with the people of God. Through those means, God gives grace. Grace, the gift of God at the astoundingly high price of God's Son, be with you all, every single one of you. In every circumstance, in every situation, until He comes. So I have a question, church. Do you really know this grace? Have you received this King? This King of glory? This King of grace? Knowing Him makes all the difference. And if you don't know that you know that you know Him, I beg of you, along with the book of Hebrews, stop trying to get to God in your own power. Bow the knee of your life and reach out for the God of grace. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, what a book. What a challenge. What an encouragement. God, just a few years after this book is written, Nero would be killing Christians openly, publicly. He would be making sport out of the killing of believers. And the Apostle Paul would urge us to pray for our leaders. God, in our country, I feel, I believe, I sense, I see that you are shaking your church. That it's a time of testing. It's a time of proving. It's a time to endure. And God, I pray in Jesus' name that the people of God called North Roanoke Baptist Church, that we would endure. 
that we would be a church filled with your grace, committed to your word and to one another, and that we would shepherd one another in the power of the gospel to the heavenly city to come. And God, we don't want to leave anybody behind. And God, in a room this size, there's, there's got to be at least one who does not yet know you and needs to surrender their lives and stop trying to get to God in their own power, stop trying to have peace in their own power and instead give their lives to Jesus, the only one who's qualified to give peace through a relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. So Lord, as we stand in just a moment and sing our last song, I pray you would give liberty in this place. I pray that you would change hearts for your glory and for those who know you but maybe have been straying from the message of your grace that today would be the day they say, I'm going to be a person of the Word and a person who is around God's people. Lord, work in this place for your glory and our good. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.